you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 5. Just a moment. So we've been following the early ministry of Jesus. Uh, He began in Nazareth, right, proclaiming himself to have been anointed by God to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. And he demonstrated, as we saw last week, his power and his authority to do this by releasing people from bondage, right? There was the, the man who was suffering from a demon, and Christ set him free. There was a a woman, Peter's mother-in-law, who was suffering from a fever, and Christ set her free. He set people free from the spiritual and physical oppression, the results of the fall that they were living under. But he eventually had to move on, right, saying that, that the other towns needed him as well. Everybody needs the message of Christ's freedom. And so he moved on, leaving some people behind. There would have been a desire on the part of these people to have Jesus stay there forever and just heal their sick and comfort them. But he had to move on and he left some things undone. Those people would still ultimately die. And it caused them, and it can cause us, to wonder why he didn't just solve all of their problems at once in in one fell swoop. The answer that we arrived at is that he's not done yet, right? That work that he began in Galilee on that day is still going on today. We have our hope for this world, not in being, being able to fix it, but in the fact that he has already fixed it. He is fixing it and he will continue to fix it. Now, we should see, and we will see progress day by day, year by year, as we become more like him. But that work will not be finished until the day that he comes back. That is when all of that reshaping, all of that healing, all of that deliverance, all of that remaking will be finally complete and finished. And that's why our great hope, our living hope is in Christ and in his return. Because ultimate freedom from pain and suffering and sin and death are only going to be found in him at his return. So let's pick up uh, in Luke 5, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. 
From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Jesus continues his ministry. This is an itinerant ministry. He's going about from place to place, teaching in the synagogues and on the hillsides to all of the people. And the people were eager to hear him preach. They would come from miles around. And this ended up causing some problems, right? Because they would, they would press too close. And so Jesus got into this, into this habit often of, um, of getting into a boat and drawing the boat a little bit offshore so that everybody on the, on the shoreline would be able to hear him. And this just happens. It just happens, you know, by chance, right? that he ends up in Simon Peter's boat. This is the guy whose mother-in-law he healed last week. At least last week as we're looking at it. And Peter apparently doesn't hold that against him. <laughs> um, and so you can, you can imagine Peter sitting there washing and mending his nets, sitting in the boat, and, and as time goes on, he's, you know, he's doing more listening than he is working. Right? He's... He had been working on washing and mending his nets, but as time goes on, he's just listening more and more to what it is that Jesus has to say. And when Jesus is done, he tells Peter, go ahead and put out into the deep water and let your nets down. Now, Peter's a little reluctant to do this. First of all, he's tired. They've been fishing all night long. And he had just finished cleaning these nets. This is not a small job. And now, Jesus, you're telling me to go out and drop them down again. Again? I'm so tired. And this was completely counterproductive. The way that they would have done this fishing is in shallow water uh, in in the nighttime with these drag nets, right? They would have had floats on the top and weights on the bottom. They would have drawn them up in a big circle and then kind of pulled them together. If you use those in deep water, they're just not going to work right. And so this is, this is one of those things that, that just doesn't make any sense at all. It's difficult and probably pointless. And Peter points this out. He says, you know, in the terms of full disclosure, Jesus, I don't think this is a good idea. But, but, because, you, because it's you telling me to do this, I'll do this. Now, I don't know if you know my brother Gabe, right? He's my little brother. Little brothers are always little brothers. He's a skilled contractor. He knows what he's doing. But if Gabe calls me up and says, hey Josh, I need you to bring me this, that, and the other thing, I'm gonna question him a little bit, right? I'm gonna say that, well, you know, do you you really need that? When do you need it by? Do you need it, you know, is is it that big big of an emergency? I'm gonna have questions for him because he's my little brother. I just can't help it. On the other hand, uh, Mark Carter is a friend of mine, and I trust his word basically explicitly. You know, if he calls me up, and the full extent of the conversation is him saying, Josh, I need you to meet me at the airport in 45 minutes with a, with a screwdriver and a bag of carrots, and then he hangs up. I'm going to go get a screwdriver and a bag of carrots and go to the airport because I trust his word basically without question, at least in matters of, of building. Uh, and so there's a difference in how I respond to those people based on 
on, on my relationship with them. And so Peter says to Jesus, I don't, I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense to me. But because it's you, Jesus, I trust you. I trust your word explicitly. So I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And so they do as Jesus says. And they pull in this huge catch, more than they can possibly handle, more than they have ever caught before. Peter sees in this moment that this man who is in his boat is something more than what he had thought. This is nothing less than the Lord over all creation. Because even the fish of the sea obey him. Even the fish of the sea are eager to serve him and to fulfill his purposes. Now, Peter's response, I think, is, is, is beautiful and it's telling. Because he could, have, he could have just responded with rejoicing and thankfulness. And that would have been a good thing for him to do. But he realizes, he understands in a way that he has never understood before, that this is not just a preacher. This is not just a good man. This is not just a prophet. This is not just a miracle worker, but this is the very Son of God standing before me. This is the Alpha and the Omega. I am who I am, the self-existent one, the one who knows and judges not just on our actions, but on the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. I am standing in the presence of the eternal Word of God made flesh and blood. And that inspires in him fear. Fear. Why is he so afraid? So back in Exodus 33, Moses is talking to God. And, and Moses asks of God, I, I want to see your face. I want to experience you more fully. And, and God makes allowances for, for Moses to be able to see the, the, see the back of him. Whatever that looks like. I'm a little unclear on that myself. But he says to Moses, God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So no man shall see the face of God and live. And then in Isaiah 6, we see a little bit more. We see that uh, fleshed out a little bit more. So in Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this vision and he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. He says in, uh, in verse 4 that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So he's experiencing the presence of God. And he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So it was Isaiah's and every man's sin that caused him to collapse in fear because he understood the greatness of the glory of God and he understood the depths of his own sin. But in Isaiah's case, atonement was made, payment was made for his sin. And so for that time, at that moment, he was washed clean. But a sinful man, a sinful person, a sinful heart, cannot enter into the presence of a holy, of a perfect, of a just God. 
But that's what Peter realizes here. He recognizes, he realizes the glory of God and he recognizes the depth of his own sin. And he recognizes that he cannot survive. He cannot exist as an unholy, wicked man in the presence of a holy God. His sin is too great. His heart is too broken. And the holiness of God and the wickedness of his heart cannot exist together. They cannot because God cannot allow for his sin to go unpunished. It says in Psalm 7 that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And in Romans 1, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And in Isaiah 26, that the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its stain. Now some sins, some sins affect the people around us and our relationships with them. Some sins affect the environment around us. Some sins just affect ourselves, but every sin first, before it affects any of those other things, is first and foremost an act of rebellion against our Creator. Every single sin is a time when we say to the maker of heaven and earth, I know best. My way is better than your way. And so each sinful act, each sinful word or thought or inclination is intrinsically an act of rebellion against God. It says in Genesis 6 that our hearts are continually inclined to evil. So you have this uncrossable Chasm, this unbridgeable divide caused by the sin and rebellion in the human heart. And Peter sees this. He understands this in a real intangible way that he has never understood it before. And he collapses in fear at Jesus' feet. Fear that the day of judgment has come for him when every, when every act Every thought is laid bare when he will be judged justly and rightfully punished for his sin and rebellion. That's what he lays there in fear of. That he will have to pay. That he will have to pay. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say here? Do not be afraid. Now, Jesus doesn't minimize his own holiness. Right? He doesn't say, Peter, get up. I'm not that much better than you. I'm, I'm just another person like you are. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He also doesn't minimize Peter's sin. Right? He doesn't say, Peter, you're not that bad of a guy. Come on, you're actually doing pretty good. Just don't worry about it. He doesn't do that either. He also doesn't lord it over him. Right? Yeah, you've got that right, Peter. You bow before me. That's not how Jesus responds. Jesus responds with compassion. And he responds to Peter and his rightful fear with love and grace and mercy. When we first started looking at the book, at the book of Luke, we said that the theme for the entire book was found in Luke 19.10. That the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. To reconcile sinful man with a holy God. But this conquering king 
begins by conquering hearts, not kingdoms. And Peter, and Peter is one of those people who are lost. And he is just now, just at this moment, recognizing the full extent of his lostness, the full extent of his need for a savior. And he may be lost, but he is laying there in humility at the feet of the one who has come to save him. And Jesus responds by telling Peter to follow him. He doesn't give a list of of preconditions, right? Here's your checklist. You better get this straightened out, Peter, because you get this one shot, and if you don't do it right, you're done. No, that's not what he says. Uh, in, In the parallel account in Matthew 4, Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus calls Peter to follow him, to go where he goes, to learn what it is that he is teaching, to follow his example in every aspect of life. Follow me. Because up till now, Peter's life was was self-directed, right? It was Peter who was in charge of Peter. He was following himself. He was building up his own little kingdom. But Jesus calls him to repentance, calls him to a change of mind, calls him to a change of direction, a change of king. He calls Peter to follow him rather than following his own path. And not just follow him, but he calls Peter to follow him with a purpose, with a commission. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So Jesus is here on this earth to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open blind eyes, to seek and to save the lost. And he doesn't need any help to do that. He could accomplish it entirely by himself. But Peter is given the privilege with this call of participating in that work. He will no longer be fishing for men, or no longer fishing for fish, but instead he will be fishing for men. Jesus is calling him, say, Peter, cast out the net again and again into the deep, dark water of the human heart where it doesn't make any sense at all to cast it, where it's completely hopeless. You're not going to catch anything. And Peter, see what it is that God brings up in that net. He is inviting Peter to be a part of the work that he is about, bringing that kingdom of heaven down to earth, expanding the reach of that kingdom, beginning with their hearts, moving out of their hearts into their actions, into their lives, into the world around them, and into the people around them. So that by their faithful witness, by the impact of their lives and their testimonies, all of creation and all of mankind will resemble more and more the fully redeemed, fully restored state that they long for. And Peter, Peter and Associates, James and John, they see this. They greet this call with joy. They see this as a great opportunity. They leave everything and follow him. There was nothing. There was nothing that they could do with their boats, with their business, with their lives. There is nothing that that they could do that would be of greater purpose, of more importance, of more meaning, of more value than to follow Jesus. 
So whatever it was that they had planned, whatever it was that they had cooking in this little business of theirs, this was better. This was higher. This was greater. And so they left it all behind in pursuit of Jesus. Now we, we in a lot of ways are called to see ourselves in Simon Peter. I love Peter. I think that he's, he's just my type of guy. Because he very often gets it wrong. Just completely wrong. And sometimes he gets it right. And when he gets it right, it's when he is operating in this simple, this uncomplex, wholehearted faith in who Jesus is. So Jesus calls him here to become a disciple, a student who would travel with him, live with him, spend every waking moment with him, learning everything about who he was and how he operated. And at the end of Jesus' time here on this earth, he calls together all of, the, all of those disciples, all of the people who have lived, like, lived with him in that respect, learning everything that he had taught. And he tells them, I have done this for you, not for your benefit, but for the benefit of others. As in Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in the parallel account in, in Matthew, he says to them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Peter, Peter and these other disciples were made disciples for a purpose so that they could be witnesses to who Jesus was and what he did on this earth. And in that process, in that witnessing, they would raise up other disciples, teaching them everything that Jesus had taught them. Now we have been summarizing the teachings of Jesus to his disciples in three phrases, right? Love God, love others, make disciples. That's a summary of what we as individual Christians and what we as a church have been called to do. But there are characteristics of this call that we see to Peter that I think are important for us to, to understand. Now the first thing that we need to see is that this call from Jesus to Peter is immediate. This is for right now. Now there's a temptation I think for us, in our discipleship, to, to constantly be waiting for the ne next stage of our lives, right? That will be better. I have the good fortune to have been brought up in the church, and so even this begins for me back when I was a student, right? Well, you know, after I'm done with all of this homework foolishness and these classes and all of that, then that's the time that I really get to start being a disciple. And then after that's done, you start a career, right? Well, once I'm established and really have my feet underneath me, that's going to be the best time for me to be a disciple. And then kids come along, right? And you say, well, after the kids get into school, then that's going to be the time that I can really start diving into being a disciple. And then the excuse shifts to, well, after the kids are out of school, that will be the best time. 
And then once I retire, well, after the grandkids aren't so busy, well, after this, well, and if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we've reached the end of our lives. We've reached the end of our lives and we've found that we've ignored, we've neglected. We have disobeyed this command that Jesus has given us. But the call that Jesus gives Peter here the one that he gives us is immediate. Starting right now, Peter. Starting right now, James. Starting right now, John. This is what you're supposed to do. Follow me in word, in deed, in path, in thought, in everything that you do, in everything that you are. Follow me. Now, part of that following of Jesus is the making of disciples. Right? Jesus taught people to follow Jesus. And so when we make disciples of Jesus, we're supposed to teach other people to teach people to follow Jesus. Be imitators of me, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But that call to be a disciple and to make disciples is immediate. It is right now. And it takes priority and it takes precedence over every single other part of our lives. So the call is immediate. The call is also undefined. Now we today really like to know the parameters of an agreement before we agree to it. Right? Okay, Mike, do we have a deal? On what? And what are the terms of this deal? I want to know before I agree to it, right? I mean, is it, Jesus, is this a part-time gig or is this a full-time thing? Or is it like a, like a, a, a contractor thing? I, I, I mean, is there, is there health insurance? What does your dental plan look like? I mean, these are, these are it, it sounds ridiculous, but, this, but these are some of the questions that, that we tend to ask. I'm, Jesus, that, that's fine. I want to be a disciple, but do I really have to read a book? I mean, really? That's not my thing. Just how often do I have to show up at church? Like, is, is every other week okay? Is like once a month fine? Do I have to be there every week? Do I have to talk to these people outside of church? I mean, really? No, we, we like to have, we like to have our agreements well-defined, carefully constructed. And especially, we are especially prone to look for, to look for add-ons, right? Things that we can add to our lives to make our existing lives better than what they are. Easier, richer, more rewarding, more enjoyable. All you need to do, all you need to do to make your life better is to go and get a motorcycle, right? It's great. You know, to feel, to feel the wind and the road, and it's wonderful. Something you can add to your life to make it better. And that's how we approach, that's how we are tempted to approach Jesus. As something that we add to our lives, that we bring in, that we, the frosting that we put over the cake to make it that much better. But that's not what Peter was called to do. Jesus didn't call Peter to church on Sunday. Jesus didn't call Peter, Peter, read your Bible more. 
Peter, add me to your life, and your life will be that much better. But what Jesus is calling Peter to is an entirely different life. A life that is focused on and oriented towards Jesus in every single way. Now, Peter doesn't ask, and Jesus doesn't offer some sort of a prospectus. You know, here's what you can expect. He just says, follow me. Well, how difficult is it going to be, Jesus? Follow me, and I will be with you always. That's what he promises. Well, what's it going to cost, Jesus? I I mean, I don't want to have to give up too much. He says, follow me and lay up for yourself treasures not on earth but in heaven. Follow me. And we have to acknowledge, if we're going to be honest, that this could end up costing us everything. It ended up costing Peter everything. The tradition of the church holds that Peter was crucified for his faith in Rome. Peter's response to this question cost him everything. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, gain that which he cannot lose. Peter gave up his life. He gave up his business to follow Jesus. But those things were temporary. Peter's life was temporary. Peter's business was temporary. He gave up the temporary to gain the eternal. Now you may not be called in your discipleship to die a physical death, which in some respects is easy because it's simple. But rather, more often we are called to die a little bit every day to the desires and to the intentions that have motivated our lives to this point and submit those to the desires and the intentions of Christ. And it may not be much now, but those grow over time as we come to understand better and better who Christ is and what it is that he is accomplishing on this earth. We will find that his call, that his claim on us, that his instructions to follow me reach into every single aspect of our lives. There isn't a single part of our lives over which he doesn't cry selfishly, mine. So the call is completely undefined. There's no boundaries. There's no limits to it. All he says is, follow me. The call is also for the benefit of others. Couldn't find a one-word phrase to express that. If you think of one, if you are one of those walking thesaurus people, let me know. I struggled on that for much longer than I should probably admit to. Uh, So the call is for the benefit of others. Our natural, sinful inclination is to say, what's in it for me? Okay, Jesus, you're telling me to follow me. What do I get out of it? Now, I would say that the benefits are absolutely enormous. They're tremendous. However, what we see here is that we are, not to, we are not called to be disciples simply for our own good. It's not all about you. But what does Jesus say here? From now on, you will be catching men. So Simon Peter is called here to be 
a disciple so that he might make other disciples. He is called to be a disciple for the benefit of others. And he and these men and the other apostles did that, right? They did it. They spread the gospel and they grew the church all throughout the known world within their lifetimes. They made disciples who then turned around and made disciples. They were devoted as the early church to the teachings of Jesus, to the fellowship of believers, to the prayers. And for hundreds of years, for hundreds of years, they faithfully made disciples. And then the advent of the printing press, the discovery of the new world, books, radio, TVs, cars, through all of these media, using all of these tools, disciples have made disciples who made disciples. People have always, since this day, gathered together to study the Bible, to live their lives together, to worship together. And so in unbroken chain, in an unbroken chain of disciples from those 12 apostles down through the ages, until that chain reached a particular set of people, Dennis and Florence Chapman. Now, they, he, was a, he was a trapper, right? And he was spending the winter, one winter, on Big Machias Lake, out doing what trappers do, right? They trap. Uh, and during the course of that winter, they befriended a young man who was spending the winter on the lake at a camp with his father. And this young man found that it was um, a lot more enjoyable for him to go and talk to the Chapmans than it was to sit in this tiny camp with his ex-military father who, you know, it's just not going to work out. Uh, And so he went and he spent time with Dennis and Florence Chapman. And so this couple, they didn't have a huge circle of influence, right? During this winter that all of this went on, their social contact was probably limited to this one young man. But they were faithful during that time to use the circle and the influence that they had for the glory of God and for the making of disciples. And so they began to read the Bible with him. And God used his word to convict this young man. And those two faithful disciples continued that chain and made a disciple out of him. This young man, a few years later, met a young woman who had grown up in the church and they got married and had kids. And they brought up those kids in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. They were disciples who made disciples. You see another link in the chain. And then one of those kids grew up and he ended up proclaiming the gospel each week to the faithful and beloved saints at a little country church called the Duntown Advent Christian Church. We sit here today because of a line of people that stretch back, stretches back 2,000 years who were faithful to this call of Christ to make disciples. I stand before you today as a result of the faithful witness of one couple who only were seeing one person for that entire winter. But they made use of that time to be obedient, to honor the call that Jesus had placed on their lives to make disciples. And in doing so, they led my father to the Lord. 
leading me here to be with you this morning. We each stand here today because of a chain of faithful men and women who were obedient to the call of Jesus to make disciples. So will you honor that call with your obedience? Or, or, through your inaction, will the family tree of your faith die with you? We are called to be disciples, yes. And there is a joy, there is peace. There is a satisfaction to be found in Christ and in following him. But our primary purpose in being disciples is to be disciple makers, to be people who make disciples, to be fishers of men. Now this may be entirely new for you. When you look at this story, you may identify most closely with Peter laying on the ground at Jesus' feet, or laying in the boat at Jesus' feet, recognizing for the first time his holiness, your sin. But friends, if we, if we will repent of our sins, if we will turn away from them, if we will leave them behind and place our full faith and hope in Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And he calls us all to do this every single day, to be living lives of repentance and faith in him. And the church and this church explicitly exists as a place where the people who love him are working together to try and love and follow him more closely. And there is a part of that. There is a part of that that is the shaping of our hearts and our minds and our words and our deeds so that they more closely resemble those of Christ so that we are more like him. And there is a part of that that is also teaching others, teaching the people around us to do the same. Now, regardless of whether you've been a believer for a hot minute or 80 years, 90 years, this can be a little intimidating. Much more comfortable. Much more comfortable for us to stay where we are. Say, Okay, Jesus saved me. Hallelujah. Now I just got to wait. I just got to wait for him to come back. But that's not what he has called us to do. He doesn't, stay, he doesn't say, stay put. Believe in me. He says, follow me. Where I am going, you need to come to. Now, if you're not sure where to begin with this, again, we've, we've used those three commands, love God, love others, make disciples. We are, as a church, we are coming together each week on Sunday morning to express a shared love for God. When we gather together in worship, that is an opportunity for us as a body to express our love and appreciation for who God is and what it is that he has done for us. We gather together in our community groups. Here's your plug. If you're not participating in one of those, we would love to have you join us either before the service in the library or for lunch right at our house across the road. Um, that is our opportunity to grow in our love for one another. 
and with those discipleship groups that are going. That is an opportunity for us, every one of us, to be walking alongside each other as we grow in the faith together so that we can learn how to be not just disciples, not just followers, but disciples who make disciples. People who can look to the world around us and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Because Christ has called us to himself. Hallelujah. Amen. He has called us to himself, but he has called us with an immediate, with an undefined, with an unlimited purpose that we would join him in making disciples of all the earth, of bringing his kingdom, of bringing his kingdom come here on this broken, lost, hurting world. Will you join him in that work? Let's pray. Father, this is our, this is our desire, Father. Not just that we would follow Christ. But Father, we ask that you would be working in our hearts and working through our lives, that we would be calling the lost and the hurting and the broken that Christ came to save to him, pointing with faithfulness, pointing with joy, pointing with hope to him, and calling the entire world to share the faith that we have in him and the hope that we have in his return. And it is in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen.